We're starting a brand new series today, and it's called Crossroads, and it's the life of Abraham. And uh, before I get started on that, I was, you know, you know, I, I prepare my sermons in Round Hill Park usually, and I want to talk a little bit about that real quick. And I want to start with a kind of a true confession, because those of you who know me know that um, I have this terribly, terribly spoiled German shepherd, and uh, part of his spoiling is every day, rain, sleet, snow, or shine, uh, but anyway, we're always in park. Every day I'm in around Hill Park, and, um, and people say, oh, this is a great. You know, you're such a great dog owner that every day, even when it's snowing or raining, you suit up and take your dog. And here's my confession. I don't hike in Round Hill Park every day because I have a dog. I have a dog because I want to go to Round Hill Park every day. Uh, I grew up actually on the other side of Round Hill Park, and, and my, um, my backyard went into the, the farmland that is owned now by Round Hill Park, and in, I would every day walk in there and uh, when I was a little kid or, or like a, I guess kind of grade school a- age we used to play in the creek down below and you know that's where we because st- it was hot and it was cool down by the creek and we take bows and arrows and stuff and you know Lord of the Flies going on there daily and we were all, always down there in the creek and then um, when we got older and, and of course the gang the neighborhood gang kind of broke up uh, I got a Siberian Husky in my uh, in my high school days and that dog loved to go. Man, those, things, those dogs loved to run. And so we would go. And I don't know why, because there was more people in Elizabeth then. Like my graduating class, uh, I think, had like 300 and some people. We had more people here then, but I never saw dogs around Hill Park, <laughs> ever. And so I would go a five-mile hike every day. And my, my Siberian Husky would go like 15, you know, check in on me from time to time. And I never worried about it because it was all okay. You couldn't do that now. There's people everywhere. But um, anyway, so I, I grew up with that. That was such a big part of my life that uh, I realized I needed that. I needed that, that uh, solitude in, in the woods, and, and, uh, and I, l- I really liked that. And so I needed to get a hiking partner. And uh, so I decided you know, get a dog. Now, you might be saying, you know, you don't have to have a dog to hike in Round Hill Park. And if that's what you're saying, I'm thinking you've spoken to my wife, haven't you? Because uh, that's what she says. You don't need a dog. I'll go with you. I like hiking. I'll, I'll go for walks with you. The problem is when it's my wife and I, we, we have to um, schedule it. You know, I'm going to take a hike at this time. Oh, I'm still working on this. Can we, you know, it's just too hard. I needed somebody who was always ready to go. And uh, so I got my hiking partner. Now, he's not perfect. He does get uh, distracted by things as we're hiking at the park, you know, so it's not perfect. And so sometimes there's a bit of a pause. But the other thing that I knew is that, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I knew I needed to get moving again because my my work is not moving. My work is sitting and working on a computer and sitting and preparing sermons and sitting and reading this. So I needed something to kind of get me moving. And I knew this would because not only is he always ready to go. I mean, I could wake up at two o'clock in the morning and say, hey, I got the, you want to go? He's up. He'd be yawning on the way, but he's up to go. But the other thing is he knows we need to go. And so he'll push it. I needed somebody who's going to be pushy in my life. Now, you know who I'm married to. So when you say that, I say, well, you know, God's already provided that person. But there's a difference between pushy by saying you need to and come on, let's go. Right? There's a little, little, bit, little bit of difference there, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't push. I've had dogs that did. He doesn't, but he comes and looks at you with those eyes and say, come on, you know, you want to do this, right? We said we're going to go. You know, yesterday you said tomorrow we go. It's tomorrow. Come on, let's go. And uh, so... This is what I need. I need someone who comes up to me and, and doesn't 
you need to go, but come on, let's go. And so, and he's always ready to go. He's always, always, always ready to go. And I actually say that only because it occurred to me that I think that's one of the biggest problems with the church is we're real good at telling people what to do. You need to do this. I have a list, you see. I have a list of things you need to do and a list of things you shouldn't do, and I can provide you that list if you want. And we're real good at pointing the finger and saying, you know what you need to do. <laughs> Thou shalt need to repent, you know, and, and stop all these things. But I think the thing is the Holy Spirit's more of a come on, let's go kind of a spirit. I always say, you know, we're not a spirit-pushed church. We're a spirit-led church because God leads, the devil drives. If you're feeling driven, it's not coming from God. God leads. And even when he seems to be telling you to rise up and go, he's actually leading you as he does it. And so I think we need to realize that's the God we serve. And we need to be a little bit more like that. You know, some of you have been trying to get people to come to church, friends or relatives or or whatever, uh, just remember, you know, that it's, it's come on, let's go. That's, that's the way that God works. Now, the, the advantage of Round Hill Park is that it's built on hills. And in fact, uh, because I'm there every day, and I don't stay on the main road very much, I start there, but then we get in the back, uh, but I see a lot of other people. There is one other guy who's as crazy as I am. Uh, he's there every day. Uh, even when they close down the park because of snow, we ran into each other at the park. You know, we, we have both have to hike in, but we were both there. There's a group of us that come a lot, and then you get you know, the, what, what I call the casuals. You know, they're the people who come for a while. And my heart actually goes out to them because uh, you usually see them. They're usually a couple, my age or older, uh, and one or both of them is a little bit out of shape. And you just get a sense that somewhere in here there was a doctor visit that said, you know, if you don't take off some weight and get moving, you're going to die, you know. And so, you know, the husband's all upset and the wife says, I'll go with you. I don't want you to have another heart attack. And so they come and they go there in order to basically get back into shape. By the way, kids, if you're in shape, don't ever lose it. It's a lot easier to stay in shape than get back into shape because part of what you have working when you're trying to get back into shape is depression because you realize, I used to be better than this. You know, I used to be able to do these hills and not fill them. But if you actually go to Round Hill Park and you start at the duck pond uh, and you go up the hill, turn around and come back, you're actually going across two, two miles and four hills. Uh, because you got these, t- and the first, if you start off with a half mile hill, and whenever you start the duck pond, the first thing's a half mile hill, and it's a pretty good grade. And you get to the top, you get your breath a little bit, and you go down the hill, and you have to go up another hill. You go around a little tiny loop at the end, and you come back, and now you have the back sides of those hills. Folks, if you do that for a while, you'll get in shape, if you will do it for a while. And that's always the sad thing, because I watch these people, and I, I can almost sense they're not going to be here in a couple months because eventually the desire for the dream is halted by the reality of the struggle. You know, it's like, this is hard. This is really, really hard. And, uh, you know, unless you have something prompting you and pulling you forward, it's sometimes hard to keep going. And boy, you'd think a wife and a husband would have more going on, but sometimes it's just, it's too easy when you're both feeling it. You know, the nice thing about a dog is he doesn't feel it. He's like, oh, there was a hill there? I missed it. Where was that? Why are you huffing and puffing? He doesn't understand. When there's one of you uh, who doesn't understand, it's probably better because I'll keep pushing. When you both feel the same pain, it's too easy to quit. It's like, you know, that was hard. Yeah, let's not do that tomorrow. Or it rains. Let's not do it. Uh, You need someone who's crazy and is like always going to push you forward because the reality is that these people know. I mean, I, I can tell even without having talked to them, they've had a medical diagnosis. You need to get in shape. They know they have to. It's like do this or die, and they still can't do it because it's sometimes just too hard to pay the price. And, and the reality is that a dream will never become a destiny without the will to do. 
And I don't think that's something we teach our children. We teach them to dream, but we forget telling them that you have to do. You have to do. You have to get to the point where you're willing to do. And if you're not, if you're not willing to do everything required, then it's just going to be a dream. And it's going to be out there, and you're going to kind of want it. But unless you're willing to live through the pain of the change, you're never going to get there. Now, I'm talking right now, I could be on America's Got Talent, right? Because this is the message you get like every year from like a hundred different people. I just want to show my children that if you have a dream, you can, you can see it succeed and all that. Always, always, always. Uh, but now I'm going to switch it to the Christian life because it's the same thing there. We just use different words, you know, because a dream is basically just faith minus God. You know, dreams, what we talk about on a human level, oh, you have a dream. But what we talk about at Christian levels, you have faith. And what happens is in the Christian world, it isn't just a dream. It's you have a dream. God has a plan. God has a plan for your life. He told you that I have a plan for your life. It's bigger and scarier than anything you can imagine. And it encapsulates all of your dreams and then some, but not quite the way you think it's going to be. But again, if you're not willing to work for it, it's not going to happen. And Christianity, since I've grown up, has put so much emphasis on faith, 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 that we get this idea that you can sit back and just faith things into existence. In fact, there's teaching that basically tells you you can faith things into existence. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell you that. In James uh, chapter 2, he says this, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead. It's useless. It's dead. It's anemic. There's nothing there. You can say you have faith. He says, but you may say, someone will say, well, you have faith and, you know, I have works. And he says this, show me your faith without works. Still not sure how you would do that. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And he repeats, he says, faith without works is dead. And so God has this plan for you, but he's going to tell you, come on, let's go. And if you're going to sit back and say, no, I'll just pray about it and have faith about it, you're never going to realize it. You're never, ever going to get there. In fact, uh, God's plan becomes your desire when faith meets works. There's a, there's a great scripture that's misquoted all the time in the Bible. It's Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's a kind of a really critical part to all this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that gets quoted all the time saying, see, God wants you to have all your desires. That's, that's really not what that verse is saying. What that verse is saying is, if you delight yourself in the Lord, even the desires of your heart will be coming from him. And if God gives you that desire, you can be sure that it's okay to have that desire. In fact, he gave it to you for a purpose, and that purpose is to take you into it, right? But if you're just a guy going by your own little desires, uh, then that's not the same. In other words, this verse does not say God wants you to have that brand new red Mustang convertible. That's not what this is saying. What he's saying is, if you delight yourself in the Lord, even your desires will be coming from him. And that's a beautiful thing, because then you, you and God are both working and praying for the same thing. So um, God's plan becomes your, um, your desire when faith meets works. And if you don't have that, then you'll never be able to say, well, I desire the same thing God desires. And you need to get those two things in line. What we want to do is we want to have our desires and have God come along with it. That's not how God works. He says, I have a plan for you that's greater than your desires. And if you see this and you follow this, you'll find that it fulfills you in ways you never dreamed. Um, I have one of those in my life. It's called Spirit Chapel. Those of you who know the story of Spirit Chapel, I fought against this thing for six months. It was my wife's idea. I didn't want to do this. I thought it was nuts. I still sometimes think it's nuts, to be honest with you. I, I said, this is crazy. I, you know, we, let's go find a church. There are other churches. We don't need to do this. But um, you know, it's, been, 
It's been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, the most humbling thing I've ever done in my life, but I wouldn't trade it for the world now. You know, Aspie year two, I would have traded it for, you know, six pack wouldn't have had to been cold. But, but now, you know, I've kind of got through all that. Um, I'm okay. I understand why God brought me to this and I understand why I'm here. That being said, if he told me tomorrow, you're done, I said, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we'll close the doors. Now what do you want me to do? Because I've learned that uh, it's not worth chasing after my dreams if I don't have God behind me. Uh, as I've said many times, the promised land without the promise is just dirt. You know, we need the promise. We need God's presence. So now that all brings us to the crossroads because the dream that you have will bring you to this moment when you have to say, uh, I have this dream or I have faith that God's telling me to do this. But in order to see it happen, you're going to have to take that step onto the path and you're going to have to walk with the Lord in an area that may be uncomfortable. You're going to have to do something he's calling you to do that may seem small, may seem stupid but he has called you to do it. And if you don't get there, you'll never make it past there. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to talk about a story about a man of the crossroads. We're going to walk through his whole life. His name's Abraham. I love Abraham uh, because he is a deeply flawed character. That's what I love about Abraham. He's a hero of the Bible. You know, he's considered the father of faith in the book of Hebrews. So he's a great man, a giant of the Bible, but you'll see he makes mistakes. He's flawed character. And that gives me hope. You know, if, if God only wrote you know, stories about people who have no flaws. Uh, I guess it'd be Captain Marvel. But uh, it, in, in the Bible, in the Bible, we have, we have characters that are truly human with flaws, David and Samuel and Samson and even Paul. So I'm going to show you now the scripture where we get introduced to Abraham. And it kind of like we join his story in progress. It happens in Genesis 12. He says, now the Lord had said to Abram. I'm like, what? Had said? wait, I missed it. What had said as past tense. So I go, you scoop back to 11. Where did God say that? It's not there. Sometime between, between the end of verse chapter 11 and chapter 12 in our Bible, this conversation took place, but we don't see it. It happens off stage uh, to, to borrow expression from showbiz. And so we don't see it. So he's, so he's kind of picking us up the story and says, now I want you to tell you what happened. What happened was this. Now, one little note, I don't think I'm going to say this every week, but I just want to point this out for those of you who weren't paying attention during your CCD classes or vacation Bible school. Um, you may notice that Abraham is spelled very weirdly here. In fact, it's spelled Abram. That's because that is his name at this point. Later on, it'll be changed to Abraham. That's way too confusing for me to keep bouncing back and forth. So let me just say, I will always refer to him as Abraham because uh, by the time I'm alive, he was Abraham. Uh, but if you see it, just remember, okay, that's just his name hasn't changed yet. We'll get to why it changes. It's cool why it changes, but uh, it starts out as Abram. So the Lord set, had said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. Again, uh, that sounds an awful like he's saying go, but he's actually saying come. And I'll, I'll show you why in a minute. And I will bless those who bless you. The ones who curse you, I will curse he says, not only will I bless you, I'll make sure the world around you has to bless you as well. And if they don't, I'll curse them. So I'm not only going to bless you, I'm going to, the people, the way that people treat you, it's going to change their lives because I have such a hand upon your life. I'm not going to let people curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's, that's quite a sentence. I'm going to bring a blessing of the entire earth through you. That's what's going to happen in you. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now, I wish I would have seen the conversation. 
I don't know that Abraham said, oh, okay, cool, and pick up and go. I have a feeling it was a little bit of a give and take there, like there usually is with God, a little bit of bargaining or something. Uh, but we don't see that. We just see Abraham went, and he picks up and he goes, because that's all Moses thought we needed to know, the writer of this book, and so he moves on. So now I have a lot of questions that we don't have full answers to. You kind of dig a little deep. My first question is, why Abraham? There's a lot of people on the earth at this time uh, now, we'll see in chapter 11 that we're actually following the lineage, the genealogy of one of Noah's sons, Shem. And he's from that descent. He's a descendant of Shem. And, uh, you know, there's, he had three sons that figure prominently and actually a fourth. So there's a lot of people from there. And we don't talk about them. It's like from, from now on, this is a shift. And in fact, this is a shift in the Bible. Kind of before uh, Genesis 12, Moses, the author, is telling the ancient history of the world starting with Adam and Eve and all the way up to here. From this moment on, though, we will follow Abraham and his descendants throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that's the second part of the Bible. And the third part of the Bible is the New Testament when Jesus comes. So that's kind of, if you were to divide the Bible up in three logical sections, that'd be it. Not pages. You know, there's a lot of pages dedicated to Abraham and his descendants. A lot. And so that's going to follow them from all in. So why Abraham? Why? We don't know why. God doesn't say, I chose Abraham because. But he does give us a peek at his selection process. We see why he selects other people. And since God's unchangeable, and since I believe God had a purpose for everything he did here, I believe we can apply his selection process we see later to his selection process here. And that's when he chooses his king. When he chooses his king, who will be the second king of Israel, the first king of Israel was kind of the people's choice. Because uh, he's exactly the kind of person people wanted. And then God said, okay, told you he'd be bad. He's bad. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick my king now. And so he said, I'm going to pick my guy to lead. And this is, I believe, what God is always looking for, for followers. The people are going to follow him and he's going to do things with their lives. If that's you, if you say, God, do something in my life. Here's what he's looking for. And we see this in the book of 1 Samuel when he gives instructions to Samuel as he chooses his guy. So Samuel goes to this family, God leads them there, but doesn't tell them which son, and there are seven of them, which son he's going to pick. And so Samuel goes in, and he sees the first son and goes, this is the man. He's tall, he's good looking, he's smart, he's the oldest, which always makes him the best, and by the way, he's a trained soldier. He's, he already knows the royal ways. He's actually been there, he's been educated. This is the guy, clearly look at him, he just looks like the guy. They already had one of those. Saul looked like the guy too. And so God says, don't look at his appearance or the shaking of the screen or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. I already, don't, I already know I don't want this guy. For God sees not as man sees. For a man will look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He says, I'm looking at the heart. Now, what we have a tendency to change that into is God looks for good-hearted people. <laughs> And that's kind of this ambiguous term that we use. Again, we're still taking our, our words and what we mean by good heart. You know, I spent time in Texas, and there's an expression in the South, bless their heart, you know. And you say bless their heart right before you insult them, you know. It's like, oh, you know, Betty, bless her heart. She can't cook. You know, that's always kind of how it goes. They always kind of throw that in there like that. And they're always through that, so bless your heart. But, you know, a good-hearted person, you know, you know, just a good-hearted person. A good-hearted person just someone who likes to, you know, help people out. But uh, God's not looking for a good-hearted person. No, no. He tells us specifically, I'm looking for a devoted heart. It's not that that's not good, but it's a special kind of good. He's saying, I'm looking for a devoted heart, a heart that's devoted to me. I think one of the reasons, by the way, speaking of the guy who came and prophesied here, God's using him so greatly. It's, man, he's devoted. 
He doesn't even watch TV or anything anymore. He's just in the scriptures and he's, he's just you know, reading. And you, you devote yourself to the Lord and you will find yourself uh, in the Lord's presence. In fact, uh, James says, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. you know, if you've got a problem, uh, you, know, you feel apart from God, it's not God. There's a story about um, this old couple had pulled up in, in this uh, pickup truck, you know, a farmer couple. And uh, there was a pickup truck in front of them. And in it was these like two 16, 17 year old kids from high school. And she was like over, like leaning up against him. He had his arm around her, you know, and his hands on there. There's red light, you know. And the farmer's wife looks over at her husband who's driving. And there's this big space between them on that bench seat in the truck. She goes, you know, I remember when we pulled up to stoplights, you used to put your arm around me. And her husband looks over and says, I haven't moved. You know, <laughs> so sometimes we get caught up in this, right? We're like, God, where are you? Where are you? And like, God's like, I haven't moved. Uh, it's not my fault. <laughs> You've moved. So draw close to God and God will draw close to you. A devoted heart is what's matter. And we actually know, again, because later on in Acts, they come back and, and they say this about David. They said, Lord raised David up to be their king. And this is why he said, I have found David a man after my heart who will do all my will, after my heart. Now, I misunderstood that phrase for most of my life because I thought after heart was like pattern after my heart. You know, whatever shape David's heart was in must have been in the same shape. That's not what God's talking about. He's actually talking about he's after my heart. He wants to know what I want. He wants to know what the heart of God is. You know, and um, there's a story that takes place in David's life after God blesses him he becomes the king. He unites Israel, which was really a struggle, but he does it. And they build him this huge palace, this big palace. And he's in his palace. He's walking around the house. He says, this is amazing. God has blessed me. How many of us have been blessed by God? And we walk around and say, you know, God has really blessed, blessed me. And then David had this thought. God doesn't have a house. He's still in a tent. They have a tent of the tabernacle. And he goes to God, he says, God, I want to build you a house. You gave me a house. Let me build you a house. And God asks him, who told you to do that? He's not, he's not saying this is a bad thing. He's actually saying, David, this is amazing that you would even care. He's not the first king of Israel, folks. He's not the first judge or prophet of Israel. He's just the first one who cared enough to say, God, I want to build a house for you. You gave me something. Let me give you something. This is David's heart. This is David's heart's after God. What do you want, God? And if, if we have that kind of a devoted heart, then God can use something with us. Now, Abraham was devoted. We don't know what his relationship with God was. So I can't show you that. Uh, that I, can, I will show you that later. We'll see the relationship that develops. But at this moment, I don't know uh, what relationship. I mean, clearly they, were, they knew who God was. He's directly descendant of Noah's son. So clearly they knew who God was. I don't know what his relationship with him uh, by the way, you know, the law and the prophets, none of that's happened yet. You know, so Moses hasn't come yet. So none of that's there. There is no Israel yet. So there's no, you know, commandments to the Israelites. So we're not exactly sure what they followed as far as, you know, their, their statutes. They had them, but we don't know what they were. Uh, so we don't really know God's relationship with Abraham at this point. He must have had one, clearly, because he comes to speak to him and, and, go, and Abraham doesn't freak out. So you, you know that must have been some kind of relationship. But I want to show you uh, his devoted heart because Abraham has a devoted heart. And I'm going to show it to you with his wife. And uh, so we back up one chapter in Genesis 11 and we can see this. 
this is a little bit of the genealogy, so kind of work with it through here. Uh, Terah, who is his father, be, became the father of Abraham. <laughs> like a became the father of Abraham. He had children. He had Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Now, Haran became the father of Lot. That name we'll see more. That's, uh, so that would be, uh, Lot would be Abraham's nephew, right? While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of his birth. So, so apparently, Abraham's brother dies. We don't know how. Must have been tragic of some sort died at a fairly early age. And uh, Abraham's going to take Lot in as his own child. He's going to raise him as his own. So Abraham and Nahor both married. Now the name of Abraham's wife is Sarai or Sarah. And again, her name will change as well. We'll talk about that later. And the name of Nahor's wife, no one cares. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both, blah, blah, blah. Now, here's the important part. Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. That's the part I want to stop on because this is a problem. Because Abraham is going to be the firstborn and he's going to get the inheritance from his father. And he's got nobody to give it to. In those days, that was everything. In fact, he needs a son. He really needs a son because in the patriarchal society, this is uh, women can't own anything. He needs a son. He needs a son he can give this to. And uh, he is at this point 75 years old. Now, let me put a little asterisk on that because 75 in that age, that day was not quite the same as 75 today because uh, his grandfather lives to be like 300, almost 400 years old. So what happens is as the Bible moves through the book of Genesis, you'll see the man's um, life expectancy shrinks and actually God shrinks it because they become more and more evil. He says, I can't let you live as long. There's too much evil on the earth at once. So we actually shrink it. But uh, at that point, uh, Abraham is still is going to live, you know, well over 100, maybe 200 years old. And so 75 is a little bit different than 75 now. So like 75 is the old 30 sort of thing, you know, almost like about a 30-year-old or so, uh, 30, 35 maybe. Uh, and his wife is 10 years younger than he is. So kind of when you see these ages, you kind of remember she's almost like 25, 28. And I'm talking about looks and vitality. Now, 75 years is 75 years. You saw that many sunsets and that many sun you know, rises. So that's the same. So they probably married probably around 50 years at this point. That's a long time, folks, 50 years to not have any children. Now, I'm sure when they start out, they thought they'd have children. And then after the first 20 years go by, you start wondering. You probably thought you would have a huge family. And now it's like, I just need one son. And the next 20 years go by. And you start thinking, I don't care if it's a daughter, Lord. I, I just want a child. You know, I want some kind of a child in my family. And 50 years comes by. That's a long time to go without a child. That's a long time to keep that dream going. And yet, Abraham does not take a second wife. It's very common in those days. He had all kinds of options that way because, because the way the system was set up, he needed a son. If Sarah can't produce, he can go get a second wife. We see this actually show up all the way back uh, in Genesis. Uh, he, he actually, we see the first time a, a man takes a second wife back in Genesis 4. So Abraham certainly could have taken a second wife. He also could have taken something known as a concubine. Now, a concubine is basically a wife and everything but status. So, um, you know, they have relations, she can have children, but he doesn't have to accept her children as his own. That's the concubine thing. So that if he, he needs a child, he can adopt them in and make it his, his, hair, his heir, but he doesn't have to. So he could have taken concubines. He could have taken wives, plural, if he had to. He was a rich man. A lot of people would take multiple wives to show their wealth. It was actually part of a way of showing off their wealth. But Abraham doesn't because his devotion to his wife 
was greater than his desire for this dream. He was basically saying, I am willing to live my entire life with just Sarah than to hurt her feelings by taking somebody else and making her feel second place. He won't take another wife until she passes, which is years from now. So um, he is devoted to Sarah, and he won't do that. Now, one thing I have to say about Sarah is she is shockingly beautiful. I, I don't know how else to put that, because we're going to see as they move forward from here, and you know, she's 10 years younger, and even adjusting for the age, that's 60, so you can call that 30 or whatever. Uh, there are two kings that want her for his, their wives that they'll meet, two Two kings. They have harems. <laughs> they have all kinds of women. And that, no, I want her. She must have been an amazing beauty. But any man could have loved her for her beauty. That's kind of easy, you know, for a man to love a woman for beauty. But Abraham was faithful even if men his dreams dead. He's faithful to her more than his dream. That's a faithful heart. And something else, by the way, uh, you know, the kings that kind of try to woo her, you know, they make these grand gestures, you know, prize, you know, dowries and all kind of money and these big things because Grand gestures of love are easy. You know, they're so easy. I, I, I get so hurt when I, uh, for the people, when I've watched like on you know, Instagram or Facebook, these young kids, you know, and they're trying to make this great grand gesture to show their love. And boy, this means you know, we're in love because he proposed to me in this special place and all this stuff. Grand gestures are easy. You want to know what's hard? Taking the trash out every Tuesday. That's hard. It's the day-by-day stuff that makes love hard. Those of you who've been through marriage know this is my, this is my Achilles heel. Um, Tuesday night's garbage night. I know that uh, because our garbage picks up on Wednesday morning where we are. I know that. My problem is I rarely know when it's Tuesday. I mean, it's like, I know it's Sunday because I'm here. And after that, it gets, my, my week gets foggy. I mean, I just really, my wife got so tired of asking me to take out the garbage that as soon as Stas was old enough to do it, she just gave the job to him. So he's been taking out the garbage for years. He's out of the house now, though, and Victoria's hurting to the point where she can't take it out. So it's up to me. You know, it comes down to me, the weakest link. I'm there. I'm the guy now who has to make sure the garbage gets out or we get overflowed. You know, we generate garbage in my house. And so it's up to me now, and, and uh, it's tough. It's the in and out. It's the daily stuff. That's what makes it hard. And Abraham was good at that. Abraham loved Sarah on the day in and the day out. Not the grand gestures, the day in and the day out. The other thing is we know that Abraham heard the Lord because he was listening for him. Can I just tell you, you will not hear God if you're not listening for him. That's why he describes his voice as a small whisper. The devil shouts, roars like a lion. God whispers. Do you know why you're supposed to hear God? Because you're sitting on his lap. That's why. The father whispering in your ear. That's God. He doesn't want to shout at you across the room. And think about that. Those of you who are parents, when you shout at your child across the room, why? <laughs> it wasn't telling me you love them. <laughs> when you were shouting at your child across the room, it's because they're doing something they shouldn't. Hey, put that down. Get over here. You know, that's when the parent shouts at their child. That's not how God wants to talk to you. He wants you on his lap. You guys can talk t- together. He can tell you his dreams for you. You can tell him your dreams. And that's what he wants. He wants that relationship. So he heard him because he was listening for him. But here's the thing I want you to catch. Um, he's actually asking him a very important question. Are you willing to continue on where your father failed? This is kind of buried in the text. But his father was actually on the way to the promised land and quit. Now, how about that for God? He's got his family. He's moving there. Everything's going well. And God says, ah, this is good enough and settles. 
Now, we don't know God's conversation with, with Abraham's father. We don't. But it seems like he was on the way there for a reason, and he stops. And they settle, and here's the problem. Um, it did very well for them. And we see this show up in Genesis 11. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, his daughter Sarah, and, who was the wife of Abraham, and together they set out from Ur to the, of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Canaan is the promised land. They set out to go there. Why? I believe God told them to. I need you to go. I'm going to take you here. It's a promised land. I'm going to, I'm going to raise a great nation. And he started to go there, but they came to Haran and they settled. They came to Haran and they settled. How many times have you settled short of God's promise? God's taken us there. Everything's going great. And then we're just at the edge. It's like, you know what? This is good enough. I'm okay with this. I can settle here. And they were successful. That's the thing that gets you. They, they blossomed. They, they became a very wealthy family there in Haran. They did. Unfortunately, it was short of the promise. And God comes to Abraham, and what he's basically saying is, uh, are you willing to take up from the place you're comfortable where everything's going great for you and move forward to where I'm taking you because it's the promise? In other words, can you sacrifice everything you are for everything you can become? Are you willing to do that? By the way, that's still God's question. Are you willing, that's the deal. Everything you have, everything you are, for everything you can become with him. That's exactly what he comes to Abraham and says. Now remember, Abraham's dream at this point is just to live out his days. He's 75 years old, but he has no kids. What he wants is a child. If, he comes, if God comes and says, what can I do for you, Abraham? What would you like? He's going to say, a son. God, would you give me a son? And his image is, and I'll take over all this land from my father, because I'm firstborn, and my son will grow up, and when I pass on, I'll give it all to him. It's not a bad dream. It's kind of the American dream, right? We want to raise our children up. We want to see them better off than we were, so when we pass away, we can feel comfortable passing the torch to them. That's all. I mean, I don't think Abraham had any kind of visions for anything more than that. The problem is, if that's how Abraham lives, the world goes to hell. Because God's plan is to save all of the world through Abraham's family. And he can't do that short of the promise. So this is, the, this is really the crossroads. He's saying, are you willing to pick up and go? I'm going to show you this. I kind of have shown it to you in pieces, but let me show you to its entirety. The Lord said, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. Scary stuff, by the way. It's not like they had well-paved well roads there, you know, that you could just like zip on the highway and you get to the next place. They're traveling through areas that are owned by warlords in all kinds of places. It's a scary thing what God's telling them to do. You're, 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 in, you're in a safe place right now, surrounded by people who love you, and you're in a place that you know very well. I need you to pick up and go to an unknown land through territories of people who don't like you very much. Can you do that for me? That's quite an ask. He goes on. He says, to the land which I will show you. He's, he's going to go with them. But watch this. I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. How are you going to do that without any kids? Well, I need a kid. Oh, pff, kid. I give you more than you can handle. There's going to be so many kids that call you dad and granddad that you won't be able to number them. I'm going to bring forth a nation. And Sarah, your, your wife that you love so much, who has never given birth to a child, kings are going to come from her. Can you imagine little Abraham's mind just getting blown at this point? As God starts expressing to him 
the plan that you got a dream, it's small potatoes. My plan is better than anything you can imagine, but it's going to require you leaving things you're comfortable with and going where I call you to go. Can you do that for me? Because if you will, I'll bless you. I will make your name great. Abraham, by the way, we're still talking about today. There's all kinds of kings that live in his day. We don't know who they are. Abraham's name is great, and you shall be a blessing, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, imagine if he said, oh, and by the way, when my son comes to earth, he's coming from your line. Yeah, but yeah, poor, poor little Abraham really just would have had his mind blown. But that's what God does. He only gives us a glimpse because he knows that if he tells us everything, I can't, you just be babbling. You have no idea what to say to him if he showed you his entire plan. But it's greater than anything you can possibly imagine. Abraham wanted a son to raise with his wife. God says, I'm going to create a nation. I'm going to create a nation for all of mankind. God's plans are always bigger than our dreams, but they will take us places that make us uncomfortable. And some of these little dreams we're holding as we go, we're going to have to let go of. There are some things that are just never going to happen in my life, and I need to be okay with that because what I need to do is what God calls me to do. I need to walk where he leads, and I need to go there and say, okay, well, that's not a dream I'm going to have. Show me yours. Give me yours, Lord. Put that desire in my heart because that's what I want. I want to have your desires, my desires. That's what we want. Can you find the faith to believe in God's plan after your dreams have failed? See, it's easy to believe in God when everything's going well, and it looks like he's going to give us what we want. That's easy. What about when the dream's failed? That dream's dead. That's never going to happen. Can you still find the faith to say, that's okay, because the infinite God's never out of time, and he knows what he's doing, and I'm going to follow him where he leads, and if that dream's dead, that dream's dead. That just means he didn't want me to have it. Let me move on. God, give me the desires of my heart. Give them to me so that I have your desires in you. And then one last verse, we'll close with this. I use this a lot because I just really think it's important that we see this has never, ever stopped. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. What are you looking for? That he might strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He still is. He's going to and fro throughout the entire earth. Whose heart's committed to me? Because I'm going to jump into their lives and I'm going to support them in a way they can't imagine. I'm going to do things beyond their possible comprehension. Whose heart is devoted to me? I'm going to give them something they can't imagine. I'm going to use them in a way that's great and mighty, that's going to impact the earth. I have plans for you, he says. Plans to prosper you and have you succeed. But those called according to his purpose, whose heart is completely his. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you.